Welcome back to another beautiful Sunday morning and Sunday school here at FBC Edna. It's great to see all of you here and many of you have already commented at how much energy you have. So I hope for the sake of our conversation and for the sake of our listener, we have a good discussion and a Christ-exalting, encouraging time of fellowship and Bible study. Uh, But before we dive into our lesson today, uh, and before I open this up in a word of prayer, I do need a volunteer to read the main passage of focus. We've read it the last few weeks, but I just want to continue to reiterate that passage because it's so foundational to the deity of Christ, which is the overarching theme of this section in the Forerunners of the Faith curriculum. And it's really foundational to not just the deity of Christ, but also understanding the gospel. What is the gospel? What's the significance of the gospel? So um, can somebody, in light of that, read John 1, 1 to 3, after I open this up with a word of prayer. Volunteer to read that text. All right, Michael's going to read it after I pray. So let me pray, and then um, we're going to revisit that familiar passage and, and just break it down again for the sake of review. And then we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. So let's pray, and then we'll get started with Bible study. Father, your mercies are new every morning, and your faithfulness is unchanging, and it's infinitely great. And we are the undeserving recipients of that faithfulness every day of our lives, even when we neglect you, even when we fail to honor you and to worship you and to serve you as you've called us to do so. You still lavish us with your goodness, with your kindness. You uphold us and sustain us by the word of your power. And God, because we are your children, you forgive us of our sins. We are so grateful for the gospel. We're so thankful, Father, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that though we transgressed you and though we were deserving of eternal judgment and hell you plucked us out of the kingdom of darkness and you transferred us from that domain into the kingdom of light where now we reside as your adopted children and as citizens of your eternal kingdom and god i pray that those truths would just motivate us father to love you and to serve you in greater measures each and every day of our lives, as long as you've ordained for us to live. I pray that times such as these would be encouraging to one another, Father, that we would come together in local church gatherings on Sunday morning, Wednesdays, and and other days that we gather, and that we would stimulate one another to loving good deeds as we meditate on the riches of what you've disclosed to us in Scripture. And God, that we would be just as zealous to apply those truths to our lives as we are to study them to gain intellectual knowledge. We thank you for this lesson today uh, on the deity of Christ. We trust that it will be um, a means of enabling us to further behold his glory. And Father, really just to enjoy the blessing all the more of being united to him by faith, of knowing him. Father, we pray for deeper measures of intimacy with you through Christ and by the enabling power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that your Spirit would superintend all of our discussions this morning. I pray he would give us illuminating grace to see the truths of Scripture that we're going to read. And uh, Father, that if there's anybody here today who has questions or who needs additional clarification on what we talk about today or anything that might come to their mind, I pray, Father, that your Spirit would grant to them boldness to ask those questions. And Father, that you would give me the grace to accurately answer those questions in accordance with your word. 
And God, that as we leave this time of Sunday school, whether it be going to corporate worship or whether it be returning home with family and loved ones, we pray that it would be a Lord's Day that is devoted to your glory. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Michael, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip over to that passage if you haven't done so already. And be prepared to go to a lot of other passages today. A lot of Bible verses that we're going to be taking a look at together. But Michael, read that for us, please. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. She was in the beginning with God, and all things were Okay, very good. So, just to review, and we've talked about this now for the past two or three weeks, so I just want to make sure that we're not moving on without at least getting this basic truth, because you've probably heard this passage read. If you've been coming to youth for any period of time, we've read this passage many times. We've been coming to FBC Edna for any number of times. I've, I've been here for coming up on two years this summer, and I've heard Brother Robert reference this passage even taught on the passage, but he's referenced it as a cross-reference many, many times. So you, you should be familiar with at least the words of the passage. But in terms of its meaning, what does it mean? What does John 1 verses 1 to 3 mean? Uh, would somebody be willing to, um, let's just break it down together, volunteer, verse 1, what's it saying there? Um, you have the Word, and this Word is with God, and this Word is also identified as being God. So you have the word identified as God and being with God. And Ellie, who, who do we say that the word is? Jesus, Jesus right? Um, the, you've probably heard this before if you've been Sunday school or Sunday morning with Brother Robert. Um, the, the Greek word for word is logos. And in their day, when John wrote this gospel, the concept of the logos, it was a Greek philosophical concept and in their worldview, the Logos was the ultimate explanation for reality. The, the Logos was regarded as the unifying force or the unifying power of reality itself. So all knowledge, all um, natural law, everything in reality that pertained to true knowledge and pertained to the, int- the intricacies of how the world worked. Laws of nature, laws of mathematics, scientific methods, so on and so forth. Everything intellectual that, that kind of unified um, reality could ultimately be traced back to this logos. And what John's doing is he's saying, okay, he's writing to Gentiles who would have been impacted by Greek philosophy. And he's telling them, let me tell you about the real logos here. You guys believe in this ethereal, abstract unifying principle in reality. Let me tell you who that really is. Because as we know from Colossians chapter 1, Jesus Christ is the unifying force in reality. He has created all things because he's God. He sustains all things because he's God. He will judge all people as God, as the God-man, as the victorious and ascended Christ. And he is logic itself. He is the epitome and the personification of infinite knowledge as true God of true God, to quote the Nicene Creed that we looked at last week. So we have the word, he is God, 
he is also with God. So we see now that he's that not only is Jesus God, but in keeping with the Old Testament, we know God is one. So that must mean that God is one being who exists in multiple persons. So a lot of people go to this text just to uh, remind people that, hey, the New Testament had a robust and working conception of the Trinity. And this is another great example. There's one being that is God, and that being exists in multiple persons, three persons to be exact. Does everybody understand that? Okay. So if you ever need a passage, if you're talking with somebody and they're like, hey, where in the Bible does it teach that, you know, Jesus is God? Or where in the Bible does it teach that God is a trinity? Well, this is one of those passages you can use. Um, and um, just in case people try to argue that it's not clear, well, it's talking about a word. It doesn't identify it as Jesus. Well, verse 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So right there, uh, just a few verses later, right, in the same immediate context, John clearly takes this abstract concept of the word and says, oh, by the way, that, that's Jesus. Because in our faith and in accordance with the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament prophecy, um, the Messiah would be God in human flesh. And that's exactly what the word um, became in the incarnation. So hopefully that's good review for you. Does anybody have any questions about that before we dive into some of these passages? We have several to read, so I hope you are eager and ready to dive into some scripture this morning. Okay. Well, number six, um, we did the first five. I just want to review um, for the sake of the listener and anybody who was not here last week. Uh, we've looked at five of ten evidences that our forerunners of the faith curriculum have provided regarding the deity of Christ. I'm going to review those with you. You should have them written down if you have your workbook, if you were here last week. So, number one, first evidence that we saw, and these are all from scriptural passages that we read last week. We read many. First evidence was divine prophecy. Second evidence was divine existence. Third evidence was the divine name. Fourth evidence was the divine authority that Jesus had. And fifth, which was where we left off last week, was divine power. So we've looked at five evidences for the deity of Christ as revealed in Scripture. And that brings us to where we're going to be today. And Lord willing, by the conclusion of today's lesson, we will be done with this section of the Forerunners of the Faith curriculum, looking at evidences for Christ's deity. Number six, evidence number six in our curriculum is divine ownership. Divine ownership. And let me read the description that's next to that. In keeping with his divine prerogative, Jesus claimed possession of that which belongs to God alone. He asserted that God's angels are his angels, that God's chosen people are his chosen people, and that God's kingdom is his kingdom. Right? If Jesus is God and God owns all things by virtue of creating all things, then it only follows that Jesus 
owns all things and played equal part with the Father and Holy Spirit in creating all things. There are several passages that I want us to turn to. Uh, I need a volunteer to read Matthew thirteen forty one regarding God's angels being Christ's angels. Ellie, is your hand up? Okay, thank you. Uh, so Matthew thirteen forty one, and then Matthew twenty four thirty to thirty one. Hannah, uh, Matthew twenty four thirty. Oh, that's the same passage. Excuse me. So Hannah, you're going to read that. They cite the same passage in multiple places. Um, Matthew sixteen twenty eight. Lily, and then Luke one thirty three. The final. Uh, Michael, thank you. Okay, so as we read these texts, again, if you are not reading, whether it's on your phone or in your Bible, flip over to these passages, follow along. We're going to make sure we see the truths of these passages uh, for ourselves, not just aud- uh, audibly, but also visually as well. Um, so, first text, Matthew thirteen forty one. Ellie. Yes, and then, of course, verse 42, just because I, I wish sometimes the workbook would, uh, if it's a single train of thought or in the middle of a sentence, I wish they would keep going, but verse 42, and he will also throw them into the furnace of fire in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, uh, first part of verse 41, son of man, in the day of judgment, he's going to send forth, what, God's angels as if he's not God? No, his angels, son of man is God. So he has divine ownership over the angels. And then Matthew 24, 30 to 31. Good. So um, there's a very real sense, right? God has created all things, and Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus, with the Father and Spirit, created all things. He owns all things, but there's a special ownership over his elect. And yes, I use that term elect freely. God has elected from before the foundation of the world every person from every period of human history who will be saved. We affirm that on the basis of Scripture. But Christ, again, this is not God's elect and Christ is over here aside to God. No, no, it is the Father's elect. It's the Son's elect. It's the Holy Spirit's elect. It's the one God's elect that he has ownership over, just as it's the one God who has ownership over angels. And oh, by the way, there's also elect angels. Do you know that? First Timothy First Timothy 5.21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his elect angels or chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. Why do you think some angels fell and others didn't? Why do you think? It's divine election. It's divine choice. It's divine sovereign prerogative. So yes, God owns all angels. He owns all things. He owns everything he's ever created. But he has a special ownership over that of which he has chosen, whether it be angel or whether it be human beings. Uh, 
And then God's kingdom is Christ's kingdom. We looked at Matthew 13, 41 already. Uh, Luke, or excuse me, Matthew 16, 28 and Luke 1, 33. So um, I think Lily's going to read 16, 28 for us. Very good. It's not just God's kingdom, though it is God's kingdom, but notice the Son of Man is likened to God because he is God, therefore it's Christ's kingdom. It's the Father's kingdom, it's the Spirit's kingdom as well. Michael, Luke one thirty three, please. And that's another, right here, another powerful text for the deity of Christ. Okay, back in verse... 31, it says that um, Mary's going to conceive and bear a son, right? She's a virgin, but she's still going to conceive a son by the uh, power of the Holy Spirit. And the son's name is going to be Jesus. He's going to be all these things, verse 32. He's going to be great. He's going to be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God's going to give him the throne of his father David. Okay, that's great. And then verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Well, that's eternity. And for Jesus to reign over the household of Israel forever presupposes deity. He has ownership. He has divine authority over that kingdom because he is God. Does anybody have any questions about this sixth evidence of Christ's deity, namely divine ownership? Any questions on that? Okay, very good. Well, number seven, evidence number seven for the deity of Christ is divine exaltation. Divine exaltation. And here is the description. The Old Testament forbids the worship of anyone but God alone, yet... The New Testament declares Jesus to be worthy of worship. How do we resolve this conundrum? Well, the clear implication is that Jesus is God. Do you understand how that flows together, guys? Do you all 'all get that? I mean, this is why these creeds were formulated during this era. Because on the one hand, going all the way back to the days of Israel, the people of God have said, God is one, he's one, he's one, he's one. And then the New Testament comes along and they say, worship Jesus, he's God. Well, great. Is there two gods now all of a sudden? And if we worship a creature, then that just must mean that we're committing idolatry based on the authority of the Old Testament. How do we resolve that? Well, as we just read, can't worship anyone but God, Old Testament. New Testament says we should worship Jesus. Okay, well... If there's only one God and God's the only one who should be worshipped and we should worship Jesus, Jesus must be God. Let's figure out how we can resolve this. And oh, by the way, John 8, 58, when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, as we talked about last week, he claimed to be God many, many times as well. So not only are we trying to resolve something that Christ never claimed to be, uh, we're really just working off of his own testimony as recorded in Scripture and also the rest of Scripture as well, the rest of Scripture's testimony about the deity of Christ. But let's look at these texts. Um, The Old Testament text, Exodus 20, verse 3, Old Testament forbidding the worship of anyone but God alone. Ellie's going to read that. I appreciate it. 
And then several texts from the New Testament that says Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. You have Matthew 14.33. Can I get a volunteer to read Matthew 14.33, please? Thomas is going to take it. Hannah, you can take Matthew 28.9. Luke 24.53. Who wants to take that one? Lily's going to take that. I'll take Philippians 2.10-11. I need someone to take Hebrews 1.6. Hebrews 1.6. All right, and then Revelation one seventeen. Who would like that one? Michael, is that your hand up? Thank you, buddy. All right, everyone should have a Bible open if you're not volunteering to read out loud. And whenever, I think Ellie's reading Exodus 20, verse 3. Go for it, Ellie. Very good. And really, the, the um, implication of that verse is is not saying that there's other options out there that are quote unquote God and that the the Hebrew God takes first priority over those other so-called gods. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that I'm the only God who exists. Therefore, anything you could potentially ascribe worship to, don't do that. Because they're little g gods, they're idols, they're not true gods. They have no business being the source of your devotion and affection. I and I alone am to be. So God is the only one who is to be worshipped because he's the one true living God, Exodus 23. Now let's look at the New Testament. See how Jesus is um, is said, or it's commanded, I should say. He's, he is uh, to be worshipped by believers. That's a divine command in Scripture. Let's see how that fleshes itself out in the passage as we have assigned Matthew fourteen thirty three. Very good. And in this passage and in other passages, when Jesus would perform a miracle or do something that would necessitate or do something that would cause people to worship him, he never told him to stop. And Jesus would have. I mean, it goes without saying. Every Jewish. Uh, rabbi, and really a lot of believers in those days had most, if not all, the Old Testament memorized. So it goes without saying that if they knew uh, Old Testament teaching about how worship is to only be ascribed to God, then Jesus would have certainly known that as well. So obviously, like, again, if Jesus isn't God, I say this all the time, Jesus is not God. He is not a good person. He's a liar and he is a blasphemer right there. Hey, let me worship you, Jesus. And he doesn't stop him all the while knowing he's not God. Remember, guys, don't ever fall victim for the trap of believing. Well, you know, Jesus really wasn't God, but he was a good moral teacher. He was a good example. No, 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 no. He either was everything he claimed to be, or he is the worst human being who's ever lived. He's deceived billions. That is what's at stake. Okay, uh, Matthew 28, 9. Who's taking that one? Yeah. Yep, and then verse 10, right? He, uh, he doesn't tell them to stop worshiping. He lets them do their act of worship, and then he gives them instructions. That would have been a perfect opportunity there for the gospel of Matthew to say, oh, and then Jesus said, oh, wait, no, don't, don't worship me. It's not what happens. He is worthy of worship because he's God. Luke 24, 53. 
Very good. This is, of course, after Christ had ascended. Moving on now, uh, my passage, one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. I'm going to start in verse 9 because you have to. Again, this is right off the heels, right? Philippians 2, 5 to 8. It's describing Christ taking on flesh, condescending, coming into the world to be obedient to the point of death so that he could accomplish God's work of redemption. And it's really in context, uh, Paul is trying to instruct the Philippians saying, hey, you saw how humble Christ was, how low he went to the point of fulfilling everything that God the Father sent him into the world to fulfill. You know how Christ modeled that humility in his earthly ministry and in the incarnation? You Philippians are also to do the same. And then after describing the work of Christ, Paul says this. He says, because Jesus did that for this reason also, verse 9, because of what Christ did, here's what God's going to do. The Father, he's highly exalted Christ. He's bestowed on Christ the name which is above every name. And here's the reason why he's done it. Verse 10, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's worthy to be worshipped because of his work of redemption in the incarnation. And now, after his work of redemption in the incarnation, having ascended into heaven, he's worthy of being worshipped now because God's exalted him to be worshipped by all people. And let me just say this by a way of parenthesis. Notice how in this text that we just read, it doesn't just say that all believers are going to, when he returns, bow to him and confess him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not just believers in this passage, June. It's unbelievers too. And you want to know something that's remarkable? God will be glorified in the unbelievers' profession of Christ as Lord to their eternal judgment, just as he will be glorified in believers professing Christ as Lord to their eternal salvation. God is just as glorified in the judgment, the righteous display of his wrath on unbelieving sinners. He's just as glorified in that as he is glorified in the salvation of undeserving sinners that he's chosen to set his redeeming love upon. He will receive glory in both instances. And that takes us now to Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Very good. This is just in context of describing Christ coming into the world again, um, his incarnation. Does everybody understand? Because a lot of people look at that and say, well, look, Jesus, he's the firstborn, Arianism, right? Do you understand the New Testament idea of firstborn? It kind of goes even back into the Old Testament. It's a a Jewish custom or cultural description. Do do you guys understand that? All right, you think so? What do you think it means, Hannah? Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, no, that's that's a, that, that, that I, I enjoyed you know you stepping out and, and and giving us your opinion. So I appreciate that. Um, the actual and that's okay. Listen, proud of you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so the actual technical meaning of the term is it, it it's really trying to get at this idea of being preeminent. It's it's this idea of being um, like Jacob, for example, right? God chose Jacob for the Abrahamic line to go through to eventually bring forth the 12 tribes of Israel. He did not choose Esau. So Esau was born first, but Jacob was the firstborn. Jacob was the preeminent one. Jacob was the one on whom God set his favor in order for the 12 tribes to come from. So firstborn in scripture, whenever you read scripture and you see the term firstborn, it typically always means just preeminent. So Christ, he is the preeminent one, right? He's the firstborn in the sense that he has preeminence over all things in reality. He's the firstborn in the sense that God has lavished him with favor from eternity past to accomplish the divine work of redemption in time and space, and that that work would be applied to all who would trust in him as the Lord and Savior. That's, that's really what Scripture's getting at by the concept of firstborn. Does that make sense, guys? Yeah. There you go. It's a good way of putting it as well. Okay, and then last uh, text from this evidence is Revelation one seventeen. Very good. And I'm just going to read verse. 18 and 19. And the living one and I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Just got to read some of that stuff because it's one thought and it's just glorious. That's Christ right now. Let me just say this too. I guess I'm just in one of those moods today. I have a lot of parenthetical statements to make. For those who claim to have seen Jesus in a vision and they come out feeling just, just real jovial and, um, you know, yeah, I, I, he was a nice guy. He, he really encouraged me. Or, or I just had, I had, I had a little chat with Jesus today. He speaks to me. We have, we have great chats. We have great conversations. Did you just see what the Apostle John what happened to him when he saw Christ in his glory? Remember, this is not Jesus on earth anymore, just an ordinary man by external appearances. Guys, Jesus right now, he is the reigning, ruling, exalted, and glorious Lord and King over all of the universe. And John saw him, and it says he fell like a dead man. He was, it was unbearable. And John's a believer here, by the way. John is a believer. He has the divine favor. Christ imputed righteousness to him. He, he, he's not regarded as a, as a wicked and a, and a stained man. He's got the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ covering him during this moment. But the glory of Christ was too much. It was overwhelming. It was all-consuming. And we know from Revelation 19, Christ comes back in that description of him. I just got to read it now. 
I, I feel led to read this because it's so important, guys. You hear all this nonsense. I see Jesus in dreams. I hear from Jesus. We have this great little, you know, cool relationship. He's my buddy. No, he's not your buddy. And you don't hear him speaking to you. Listen to this reigning, ruling, resurrected Lord and judge. Look at Revelation 19. This is the real Jesus. This is the one to whom John fell on his face. Heaven opened, behold a white horse, Revelation 19, 11. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness. Listen to this. He judges and he wages war. Jesus doesn't only judge war, it says, as the reigning, ruling king of kings and lord of lords. He wages war against his enemies, against Satan and the forces of hell and sin. Christ wages war against those because there's not an iota of created reality where Christ doesn't point at it and say, that's mine. He owns everything. He has that right because he's been exalted. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then it talks about, in the verses that follow, he makes war. Again, this is a, this is a vision of Christ coming to, uh, to judge Satan and his legion and unbelievers as well. And of course, we know from the rest of the chapter that he's ultimately victorious in that endeavor. Christ successfully defeats all of those adversaries. But guys, listen, Jesus is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is kind. He is the friend of, of sinners. He is the savior of all who call upon his name. But never forget when we use and when Scripture uses terms like Christ is loving, he's kind, he's merciful. He is all of those things to the nth degree, but he's those things with perfection. And he's those things with this degree of holiness and righteousness and purity. If Jesus were to appear right now, I can promise you, you wouldn't run to him and give him a hug. You would be paralyzed in awe, you would fall to the ground like a dead man or a dead woman. It would be unbearable. It's only on his summons that you would come to him. Just like it was here in Revelation 117. Revelation 117, back to the text. And I'm belaboring this point because it's so important. Look at this. Does John, he, he sees the vision... He sees this man whose hair is white like wool, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet burnished like bronze, his voice like the sound of many waters. He sees this glorious, resurrected, reigning Christ. And he says, hey, pal, gives him a big hug. No, he falls down. He's like, this is glory. This is power. And Jesus has to say, don't be afraid, John. I love you. I am who I am. That's what Christ does. He comforts him. 
But it's on his terms. It's not on ours. That's the point that I want you to see. He's exalted. Evidence number seven. Christ is exalted. That is an evidence of deity. Any questions on that point? Kind of got fired up there, but I mean, how can you read this? How can you talk about this and not just have your heart soar to the heights of heaven? This is truth. This is reality. Okay, evidence number eight. Evidence number eight for Christ's deity is divine titles. Divine titles. And the commentary next to it. Jesus applied divine titles to himself. For example, he called himself the Son of Man, a title reflecting the divine implications of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Can I get a volunteer to read that um, in a minute? Okay, Ellie. Christ also called himself the Son of God. Even his enemies recognized that by using that title, Jesus was claiming equality with God. And we're going to look at some passages that show that as well. Matthew 27, 43, Hannah. John 5, 18, Lily. John 10, 36. I change it to 36. Um, it, there is not a verse 46 in John 10. It's a, it's a typo, yeah. John 10, 36, uh, Thomas, and I'll take John 19, 7. So uh, let's first start with the Old Testament for our foundation. Ellie? That's the glory of the Messiah, the Son of Man. And that's going to be applied to Christ in the New Testament. Matthew 27, 43. Very good. So do you understand, though, like, that's coming from those who are mocking him as he's hanging there on the cross. So they, they clearly understood what Jesus was saying. They just didn't believe it. They, they said, yeah, this guy's a fraud. He says he's the son of God. Show us now, son of God, come down from the cross. The irony is some of those people who put him on that cross would come to faith later. So if Jesus would have came off that cross, they would not have been redeemed. Think about that right there. Christ loved them, even the ones who were put into death. He loved those who he came to die so much that he said, nope, I'm going to bear God's wrath in your place because you're going to come to faith in a couple of years and then you're going to see things clearly. How's that for glory? How's that for encouragement? That's powerful. John 5, 18. For this reason they tried, tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There you go. Mm-mm. No one had ever regarded God as Father. And they understood the creator-creature distinction. If somebody can claim God as Father, they must be God. Therefore, and they didn't... And and remember, here's what's even more fascinating than that, Hannah. Um, When Jesus was performing demons, or performing miracles, such as when he was casting out um, demons from um, unbelievers, the 
religious leaders of that day would say, he's casting out demons. He's performing these miracles by the power of demons, by Beelzebul. So they, here's what they did. Listen, they said, oh yeah, he's, he's got supernatural power. It's just not from God. So they took the fact that they recognized this guy's doing stuff by some supernatural power. We just don't think it's from God. We think it's from satanic forces. Let me, let me tell you this. Every one of us and every person who's ever been saved would still be there if God didn't first perform a work in our heart. Please understand that. No amount of evidence will ever result in somebody coming to saving faith in Christ. Remember what Dr. Lyle talked about? It's not about evidence. You can go down the whole laundry list of evidence after evidence, miracle after miracle, and it won't be enough. You'll always have a rescuing device because you love your sin more. You'll always have something to go to to say, yeah, but, yeah, but. That's great evidence, but what about this? What about that? You'll never be satisfied because in our sin, we love our sin. We love our autonomy. We don't want to have to surrender ourselves to a higher authority. That's the radical depths of man's depravity that God has to save us from. And it's only if God changes that heart of stone to a heart of flesh, bringing somebody out of spiritual deadness to spiritual life, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, only in that will we come to saving faith, will we come to see Christ as he truly is. Um, it's like, remember, the um, people say, oh, Dewey, you're, you're, you're just... You're exaggerating. You're, you're dealing in hyperbole here. Oh, really? Jesus appears in front of a group of disciples. They saw him, Matthew 28, 17. They saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. G- the, the, the resurrected Christ, right there, right there, some doubted. That's, that's evidence. What, what better evidence can we provide today? We don't have Jesus just right here. We say, hey, there's Jesus. That guy that was put to death, that's him. No, they were doubtful. And then, this is also, uh, you'll recall this from our video as well. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. You have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? And the rich man goes into Hades. And he's begging Abraham, or he's begging Abraham where Lazarus is at. He's in Abraham's bosom. He's saying, Abraham, send Lazarus back to my brothers. They see him, they'll believe. They won't come to this place where I'm at. And remember what Abraham said? They have Moses and the prophets. They have the scripture. Let them hear them. And then he says, no, 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 Abraham, you don't understand. Send somebody who's been resurrected from the dead. They'll believe then. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable. We don't even know if this actually happened. This is a lesson, though. And you know what Abraham says to him? What he says to the rich man? He says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they're not willing to just accept the scriptures by faith, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. That was fulfilled. We just read its fulfillment in Matthew 28. Evidence isn't enough, guys. 
It's about God performing a supernatural work of regeneration in a spiritually dead heart so that they can believe, so that they can have eyes to see the truth, ears to hear the truth, and a heart to submit to the truth. We must grasp that. Okay, John 10.36 There you go, right? Speaking of his enemies, why do you accuse me of blaspheming? Because I'm making the claim that I'm the son of God. He understood his enemies did not believe that he was the son of God. And then uh, I'm taking John 19, 7. The Jews answered Pilate. They're shouting, crucify, crucify. And Jews said, we have a law, and by that law... Jesus ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. He's a blasphemer is what they're saying. He needs to die. He's a fraud. That's divine titles. Does everybody understand what we just talked about? Is there any questions about divine titles being ascribed to Jesus? I hope that, guys, remember, you can always ask questions. I hope this makes sense. But that takes us to number nine. Evidence number nine for the deity of Christ, divine unity. Divine unity as depicted in Scripture. And the description says the following. The rest, excuse me, in the upper room on the night before his death, I almost read the next uh, paragraph there. In the upper room on the night before his death, Jesus explained that he was in perfect unity with the Father. He told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If Jesus were not co-equal with the Father, he could never make such a claim and be telling the truth. Now, there's some text there, and I have a follow-up question. First passage I want somebody to volunteer to read is John 14, 9 to 10. Uh, Ellie, and then Lily, you can take John 10, 30, and somebody take John 12, 45. Michael, thank you. Whenever you're ready, Ellie. Very good. Then John ten thirty. Very good. And then John twelve forty five, Michael. Okay, very good. Now, uh, for group discussion, this is very important. It goes back to some of the things that we talked about um, over the past few months, previous lessons. How, this is the question I want us to consider as a group. How can the reality of divine unity, as we just read about in those passages, be misunderstood if they are not understood to be speaking of God's unity of essence. How do you think, if if people read those passages and think they're speaking of unity of person, not unity of essence, how do you think people can get confused from those texts? Do you all remember what heresy teaches? That Jesus is just another manifestation 
of God. He's not another person within the Godhead. He's another manifestation of the one person. God is one being. He's one person. In the Father's one manifestation of that person, that is God. Jesus is another manifestation of that person that is God. And the Holy Spirit is another manifestation of that person, which is God. Starts with an M. So modalism. Modalism. Um, Oneness Pentecostals hold to this view. Um, New Apostolic Reformation churches hold to this view. How many of you guys have heard of T.D. Jakes? Uh, at one point, he held to this view. I believe he still does. Um, I don't know for certain. Uh, he's a health, wealth, and prosperity guy. Very famous um, so-called Christian leader. But if he holds to modalism, he's not a believer. Um, it's a heresy. But um, think about this, okay? So, so we've talked about modalism in the past. We're reviewing it today. What is modalism? Are you all listening? God is one person who manifests himself in three different ways. That's key. He doesn't, he's not one God who exists as three persons. He's one God or one being who manifests himself in three different ways. Um, so modalism. So, okay, so we just read, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said that, uh, John 14, 9 and 10, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The modalist sees those texts and says, see, look, it's one manifestation. It's the same person. The Father's just manifesting himself now as the Son, or the, or the first person that they call Father, manifesting himself as the Son. Eventually, he's going to manifest himself as the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God manifested himself as Father, quote-unquote, although nobody called him Father back then. That's what the modalist would say. So, how do you think, do you see why it's important, I guess? Like, do you see how there could be confusion there? Many Christians today are unknowingly heretical. They speak in heresies all the time. Now, they don't believe them. If you explain to them, like I've just done with you, they wouldn't believe it. But they use language and terminology that are recycled heresy from generations past. And a lot of people, here's the thing, people say, well, you know, why, why study doctrine? It's no big deal. Say, oh, really? It's no big deal? The way you've just described X, Y, and Z, truths from Scripture, you'd have been killed back in the day, or you would have been branded as a heretic. That's why it's a big deal. Because people died for this stuff. And because we want to be accurate in our articulation of Scripture. Because God is glorified just as much through purity of doctrine as it is through purity of life. It's not two opposing realities. We should be just as zealous for purity of life as we are for purity of doctrine. Jesus, right? God is seeking worshipers of those who will worship him in spirit, purity of life, and truth, purity of doctrine. It's both and, not either or. So again, when you read passages that really emphasize the oneness of God or the unity of God, those passages are speaking about the unity of God's essence, his being. That is a key distinction. God is one in essence. He's one in being. He's three in person. 
It's not a unity of personhood. It's a unity of essence. That is key. And that might be a little deep uh, for 1030 on a Sunday morning, but I hope that you guys are tracking with that. Hey guys, I wish I knew this at your age. I was a walking heretic for, you know, the first few years of my Christian life. I'd have heard, yeah, God manifests himself in three ways. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, sounds really good. That's why, like, again, like, one is Pentecostals are not, we don't regard them as believers if they willingly hold to that. They are not Christians. Now, they might, they might not know what it is they're professing, and then at that point, you know, if, if they've unwillingly or unknowingly embraced a heresy, they could be a believer, but the fruit of salvation will ultimately manifest itself in, okay, well, they've now been confronted with the truth of Scripture. What do you do with that? And it might take them some time to grapple with. I'm not saying they got accepted overnight. But if you, if you hold on to heresy knowingly, you're probably not saved. Just, I mean, and that's a hard thing to say in today's day, but that's, that's, just, that's just the truth. It's not orthodox. It's not the scriptures teach. It's a different God. That's why Jews, hey, are Jews, are Jews believers? They believe that God is one. They have the Old Testament, right? They should be, they should be it's righteous Yahweh. No. No, they believe in a different God. God is one being, but he's one being who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we plead, again, guys, this isn't just academic stuff. We plead with these people to repent of their false views and embrace the biblical truth. We love them. We share truth with them. We, we earnestly plead with them. And we do so with gentleness and respect, right? 1 Peter 3.15, 2 Timothy 2.24-26. In hopes that they will come to repentance and faith. We do it earnestly, genuinely, and gently. But we do so nonetheless. Okay, number 10, uh, really quickly. Number 10, evidence number 10. We've read a lot of these passages previously, so we're not going to go to those passages. Many of them are repeats from previous sections. But divine affirmation. Divine affirmation. And as stated in the paragraph next to it, it says the rest of the New Testament writings beyond the four Gospels repeatedly affirm that Jesus is God. The collective evidence from the New Testament provides an insurmountable case for affirming the deity of Christ. And you see all the passages there cited in your workbooks. We've read many of them. If you ever want to revisit those, obviously you can do so at your own time and make for a good devotional or Bible study with your family or friends, but my friends, those are 10 evidences right there. Forerunners of the faith, 10 evidences for the deity of Christ as we began last week and as we've brought to conclusion this week. And as Buznitz notes in my teacher's guide, coming off the heels of these evidences, he says, armed with the truth of God's word, the pastors who attended the council of Nicaea agreed to uphold biblical truth. Conversely, they condemn the teachings of Arius as heretical and dangerous. And Lord willing, next week, we are going to look at some statements, explicit statements from figures in church history that take those truths, those evidences we've just considered from the Word of God, and they codify them. They articulate them in different ways. Uh, Many of those figures we've already learned about, some of them um, may be relatively new. We're going to look at those next week. We're going to see how those affirm what we just looked at from the Scripture. 
And then we're going to hopefully get close to wrapping up this section dealing with the uh, deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, and the Council of Nicaea, all those topics we've talked about in previous weeks. Uh, Over the next few minutes, though, before we close in prayer, I do have one final discussion, question for us to um, consider as a group. It's in your books in one of those green boxes. It says, of the reasons listed above, which do you find most compelling regarding the deity of Christ? And how would you use that reason to present the truth that Jesus is God to an unbeliever? I mentioned mine earlier. I think the most compelling evidence is that Jesus would perform miracles and people were so hardened in their sin and unbelief. They said, yep, that's, that's supernatural, but we're not going to attribute it to God. No way. We're not going to let this guy be God because if he's God and he's critiquing everything that we have in organized Jewish religion, I've got to throw away all my tradition. I've got to throw away all my esteem I have to take myself off the throne of my life and off the throne of religious authority in my context. And he becomes the authority. That no-named, unimpressive-looking, uneducated guy from Nazareth, that guy is going to be the Lord of my life? I don't think so. That right there, I think that's the most powerful evidence for me personally but would be interested to hear some of your thoughts in the next few minutes before we close in prayer. They knew if, I, if, you're, if this guy's getting worshipped, he's got to be God because in the Old Testament it says, well, we're only supposed to worship God and yet we're supposed to worship Jesus. So he's got to be God then. Otherwise, we're committing the sin of blasphemy or idolatry, worshiping a false God. Any other thoughts that y'all have? Any other evidences that stuck out to you? You just like them all, don't you? Can't even pick one. You're just sitting there trying to think, which one Which one would I pick? I also like divine unity. When you understand that divine unity is unity of essence, not unity of person, it'll unlock so much of the New Testament for you. It's a key interpretive uh, framework you need to have. Excuse me. You need to have that right in your mind. But, um, yeah, that's... That's where we're going to stop today. Lord willing, next week, again, we're going to get back into some of the historical affirmations of these evidences. So I'm looking forward to doing that next Sunday. But uh, let me close this in prayer. And then um, we'll prepare to go. And uh, if you've already been to corporate worship, you can go home, obviously. But uh, for us who've not gone yet, we're going to go and worship our Lord with the rest of the brethren here in second service. But let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Fathers, we've just considered from your word, the evidence is clear and overwhelming. It's insurmountable. Jesus is God. He is co-equal and co-eternal with you and the Holy Spirit. He is truly God and truly man. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life without sin. He perfectly obeyed your law 
and thought, word, and deed in the place of all who would ever believe. And he died on the cross, bearing your wrath in the place of all who would believe so that his righteousness would go to the believer and the believer's sin would go to him at the cross and that your perfect justice would be satisfied in that double imputation, that great exchange, that transaction that took place at the cross. And Father, we know from your word and from historical testimony that Christ, after being buried for three days, he was raised from the dead. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses. He ascended to your right hand where he intercedes for the believer, where he rules and reigns over all of created reality as the sovereign Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, whether it be in their salvation at his return, or of course, in entering your kingdom at death, or Lord, they will make that profession and they will bow to him when he returns to judge and damn and conquer his enemies. You will be glorified in both. And Father, we humbly and with fear and trembling submit to that reality that you and you alone are worthy of all glory, honor, praise, and exaltation. You are the potter. We are the clay. You can do whatsoever you please with us and with all that you've created. Father, may that drive us to worship you, to serve you, to point others to you, Lord. May we be passionate about evangelism and missions as a result of contemplating the excellencies of your character and the riches of your grace, mercy, and love that are freely offered to all who repent and believe in Christ, all who receive him by faith after hearing the gospel, whether in the form of scripture or in it being shared by somebody, whether in a sermon or in a conversation. Father, we also pray we'd be just as zealous, just as passionate for purity of living as purity of doctrine. It's so important, Lord, to have sound doctrine. We should devote and commit ourselves to more accurately understanding the truths of your word. But Father, it is so much more important to not only know truth, but Father, to take that truth and live it out. Because if we don't do that, Lord, we are what Paul warns about in 1 Corinthians. We are growing in head knowledge. We are being puffed up without growing in our love. And may that never be said of us, Father. As we grow more in head knowledge, may we grow more in Christ-likeness, more in love, more in putting you on display in every aspect of our lives. And God, as we now prepare to leave this place, whether to go home or to go worship you corporately, we ask, Father, that you would be magnified in our midst and that this Lord's Day would be pleasing to you and restful for us spiritually, emotionally, and physically. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.